you please pray with me just as we turn to God's word together? Heavenly Father, we recognize that each week as a church, as we open your word, uh, we don't seek primarily to hear a pastor speak, uh, but instead we long to hear you speak. And so we're grateful already that as we've opened up our Bibles, we have heard you speak to us clearly uh, in your word. Uh, we're thankful that you speak, you have spoken to us by your son. And we pray that you would teach us this morning, uh, that you would open our eyes, uh, that the words that we hear would be more powerful than anything that I have to say, uh, and that each of us would be listeners uh, of your word, that we wouldn't walk away uh, unchanged, but instead that by your spirit you transform us and make us more like Jesus. Uh, we ask all this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be uh, television news people. Um, I'll tell you that I'm increasingly not. Um, that may make me sound sort of like a, a curmudgeon, um, but I find it really hard to watch the news. Um, particularly in, in recent days, uh, you turn the news on and it feels like the, the bad news always outweighs the good news. Like the good news can never, never keep pace with what's going on. Uh, so you'll hear these uh, nice little stories, but they can't compete with what has happened in the Gaza Strip. Uh, the, the terrible things that we hear about, uh, even in the good news of um, people who have been kidnapped being released, yet there is no peace there. Uh, it's almost a distraction in some ways from the war that was already taking place in Ukraine and all that happens there. And those are just sort of massive global levels, but there's all those other things happening. Um, and this may be sort of a, a head in the sand kind of approach, but I find myself increasingly not wanting to watch the news and wanting to watch other things. Um, but then you watch sports and Ohio State loses again. <laughs> and so all I'm left with is that my wife and I watch the Great British Baking Show. Uh, and, and, that, and that seems to be okay. Well, all, all of these things point to the fact that we live in a, in a broken world. In a broken world. And while there is good news, it doesn't seem like the good news ever outweighs the bad news. Um, and this points to humanity's inability to fix ourselves. Uh, with all the solutions that people have offered, whether it's uh, we just need more information, if people just knew more. Uh, or maybe if we, if it was education, if people uh, could be taught things, or uh, even legislation, if we just changed the rules or the policies or the laws, maybe that would fix things. The problem is that uh, if you just think historically, none of those things have proved sufficient uh, or adequate for the problems of our broken world. Um, I may already, as I've said, as a no-news guy, sort of sound like a curmudgeon, uh, but I'll tell you that there are a few podcasts I listen to, and one of them ends the same way every week, uh, with the gentleman who interviews people saying, um, where, where is the good news? Uh, where do you find hope in the world today? And, and essentially, that's what I want to do today. I want to, in, in the face of uh, the brokenness of our world, uh, our, our own lives, the problems that we face as, as sinners, as sufferers, 
um, to go, where is the good news? Uh, and if we think about this and we turn to Ephesians 2, we find out that the good news of the gospel far outshines the bad news of our world and of our lives. And you and I need a more powerful word than the tragedy that we face, than the things that we hear on the news, when there are the moments that we feel like God is not doing anything. Uh, what will his words say in the face of that? And so I just want to draw our attention uh, to these first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, which set before us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, as, as we think through this, you'll realize that I am uh, no brilliant individual, uh, but we'll have uh, three sort of stops along the way. Uh, the first one, in verse 1, you were dead. You were dead. Then in verse 4, but God. And then lastly, verse 8, by grace. So you were dead, but God, by grace. Uh, I realize that I'm dropping us together in Ephesians 2. Um, and you haven't been there for a while now, so I just want to give us a, a brief reminder about what is happening in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 gives for us uh, God's uh, great plan of salvation, and chapter 1 anchors it in eternity past. Uh, there we find out that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are at work uh, rescuing a people and remaking, redeeming a broken world. Uh, the, the plan is that God will unite and redeem all things under Jesus, who is Lord and King of everything. If you just turn back one page in your Bible uh, to Ephesians 1 verse 10, I think you'll see it clearly there. This is God's plan, verse 110. For the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Christ, in heaven and earth, everything. Uh, we don't usually use the term full time or fullness of time. Uh, but if, if you are a European football proper soccer fan, you'll know that when the clock gets to 90 minutes, that's full time. That's full time. And what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 1 is that when the clock of our universe hits full time at Christ's return, everything will be made right when he comes back to make all things new. Uh, we're told in scripture that there is no plan B, uh, but there is a plan that is cosmic in nature that encompasses everything, but also personal, everyone. And it, it is all under the reign of Christ Jesus. So if, if that's the background for us in chapter 1, then we get to chapter 2, and Paul does something really unique. Uh, he says, if you want to understand this, I'm going to take it from that cosmic level, and I'm going to draw it to the individual level. And I'm going to say, what about you? Uh, what has God done in your life? Essentially, he's asking the question, what were you like before Jesus? And how were you saved by Jesus? So if you are here this morning, uh, a Christian in Parma, Ohio, you are essentially asking the same question that the saints in Ephesus are asking. What was life like before Jesus? And how have I been changed by Jesus? I would also say if, if you can't say those things, then to, to listen to what uh, Paul argues through this text as he points to real and lasting hope. 
Well, all of those things get us to our, our first point. And, and Paul begins here in verse 1. If you just look back down to the text. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Uh, Paul begins here with a, a stark reflection in verse 1. This is what life is like before Christ. Uh, John Stott, as he thinks about this, says that Paul must begin by talking about what humanity is by nature before he can talk about what humanity can become by grace. So we have to start in verse 1 before we can get to verse 8. Paul begins here with a sort of uh, spiritual diagnosis, and it's, we would admit, a really painful one. Uh, these first three verses here summarize the condition of all humanity. I think you'll find that this is not just an Ephesian problem if you look at the words that he, he chooses here. Uh, think about the audience in verse 1. He says, you, you were dead, talking about the Ephesians. But then he says in verse 3, this is how we all once lived. And then by the end of verse 3, he says, and by nature, like the rest of mankind. So this is you and we and they. This is, this is everyone. This is humanity's dilemma. We are born spiritually dead. Uh, no relationship with God. Essentially, he's describing people who are physically alive, but spiritually dead. So nobody gets to say, well, you know, I've, I've actually always been a Christian. Uh, that doesn't hold with Ephesians 2 here. And if we are tempted to say, well, I don't think that's me, then he describes this for us in two ways. That our spiritual deadness is revealed in our life. It's confirmed in two things. The first one is our sin. A sin is our, our failure to meet the mark of God's perfection. Uh, scripture says that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, you've already, we've already read in the Psalms that nobody gets to say, I'm righteous. There is, there is no one righteous, not one. So this may be a painful thing to say, but if we're to take the test, the test we get back of, Am I morally righteous? We, we fail. We, we fail that test. And it's not only that, but problematically, uh, we also have this thing called trespasses. Uh, we have gone outside of God's law. We've jumped the fence. So where his good ways say, stay here, we've said, no, I think I'd like to do this instead. We've gone outside of God's law. We are, we are rebels by nature and by action. I think some of us might be inclined to say, you know, that's, that's a pretty pessimistic view of humanity. And, and I would agree. I would say that if Paul is thinking about humanity's ability to make itself better, he is, is quite pessimistic. But I would also say that he's, he's accurate in what he's saying here. Uh, if you go to a doctor, an oncologist, and the oncologist uh, or to tell you or I that, that we have cancer, we would not respond by saying, you're such a pessimist. We'd respond by saying, how do you know? And here, the answer to how do you know is that we are sinners. We've gone, we've fallen short, and we are trespassers. We've gone outside. The, the reality is that when we read these verses, they are painful things to hear. I don't think anybody wants to hear Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. 
but we are just like those patients needing the expertise and the truth of the doctor to rightly assess and diagnose and identify our hearts. Uh, the reality is I don't think any of us see ourselves very well. Uh, my sister works in, in healthcare and she sees patients all the time. And uh, they'll do that intake form where you go in and they ask you all those questions and you have to write down all your answers. And <clears throat> they're questions like, how often do you exercise? How do you eat? Uh, how often do you drink alcoholic beverages? And she'll tell you that like the, the doctors speak, the nurse as they talk, the, the rule of thumb is this, that whatever they say about exercise, it's probably less than that. Uh, whatever they say about food, it's probably worse than that. And whatever they say about alcohol, it's definitely more than that. Um, and that's not just like a, a UH uh, Cleveland Clinic sort of diagnosis about humanity. Um, the psalmist says this in Psalm 36. He says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or to hate their sin. The good news for us, although it is painful, is that God is not interested in flattering us. He speaks truth. And we may not like God's word here, but if you find yourself frustrated or annoyed or bothered by what scripture says, I would just ask you, does it ring true? And I would ask you too, just to keep listening. Uh, he says three things here about our life before Christ. The first one is this, that we are captives to the world. I don't know if you've ever uh, watched a Christmas movie or had this own experience of um, uh, a little boy or girl unwrapping one of those uh, track cars where it's the little remote trigger. And all you can do is make the car go faster or slower, but you can't make it do anything else. It just follows the track. It just keeps zipping around. Paul says something similar about us, that we have no ability to escape the way of the world. Uh, we're, we're stuck in it. Uh, we are stuck in our opposition to God. We sometimes a little faster, a little slower, but never outside the track. Worldly living, if we were to think back in Ephesus, sort of has two brands. Uh, the first one would be uh, a very religious brand. How do we deal with our problem? Well, we try to earn our way out of it. Uh, you would have seen this here in the Jewish religious way. Uh, the religious authorities uh, were experts at making new laws, new tests, in every way trying to confirm that they're not so bad. And that maybe, maybe, maybe they could try to be pretty good. The Pharisees had rule upon rule to, to prove their own goodness. And religious people can become very convinced that their sin is not that bad. And that their good deeds are actually really good. Uh, the problem with this approach is that it offers no freedom from slavery. Uh, to the people who are seeking to work their way toward God, the question is, have I... Have I done enough? And the response is always no. There's never certainty. There's never assurance. There's never the promise of hope. Uh, the, the second approach, maybe the second brand we could call it, would have not been the, the Jewish religious approach, but probably the, the, the Roman 
freedom and autonomy approach. Instead of trying to work your way toward God, instead it's just make yourself God. Uh, do what you want to do. Do what makes you happy. Whatever passion or pleasure or desire it is, you pursue that. And if you and I were to go to Ephesus, a really metropolitan city, we would have seen temples to all sorts of pleasures and desires. Whether it was money or success, the harvest or sex, all of those things. So choose yourself what you want to be and what you want to do. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the, the news recorded for us the sadness of the death of Matthew Perry, uh, the actor from Friends. And I haven't read his biography, but someone sent me a couple quotes from it, and he said this. He said, I, I think you actually have to have all your dreams come true to realize that they are the wrong dreams. A few pages later, he says, I'm constantly filled with this lurking loneliness. It's a yearning, clinging to the notion that something outside of me will fix me. But I had had everything that the outside had to offer. Now, this is a man who experienced every worldly success and every worldly promise, but he found out that they did not make him free. I think we find out that slavery to the world is not an Ephesian problem, it's a Cleveland problem. It's a, it's a me and you problem. Wherever we go, we take it with us. It's a human problem. And just like Ephesus, there are people in Cleveland and Parma and Brexville and Broadview Heights who are religious people seeking to be good and autonomous people trying to be free. So we are slaves following the course of the world. Uh, secondly, in verse 2, we find out that we are captives of the devil. Uh, we follow the devil, the prince of the power of the air, is the same ruler who is at work in the sons of disobedience. So this is, these are our people. These are our friends. This is who we belong to. And outside of Christ, we believe Satan's lies. We like Satan's lies. It's just a, a repeat over and over again of what happened in the Garden of Eden, where the devil says they got really say, and Adam and Eve thought, I'd like to believe that instead. Uh, thirdly, in verse 3, we are slaves to our own desires. The, the flesh here, which is the word used for us, is all of our sinful desires and passions. It's not just the way that the devil tempts us, but it's that we really want what he offers. Uh, like uh, a really good fisherman who knows the kind of lure that's going to get the kind of fish that he wants. Uh, the fish is attracted to that, and we are attracted to the kinds of things that are offered. So we don't get to blame anybody else when we recognize that there is anger and pride and greed and gluttony and impurity in our hearts. All of these things sort of prove this trifecta of doom. Uh, these first three verses for us describes for us death and, and all of its friends. It's, it's a really dark introduction to a hopeful passage. And we may not like the diagnosis of Ephesians 2, but the question is, can you deny the truth of it? We may not like what it says about us, but can we actually argue it away? Uh, I don't know what kind of neighborhood you live in, but there's a lot of kids that will come and trick-or-treat at our house. 
Um, there are like the cute costumes, like the princesses and the firefighters and all that stuff. And then there's the less cute costumes, which are various degrees of dead or undead. Um, I'm not making any statements on that. Um, but I, I think on some level, uh, you know, you see the kid come up your driveway, you know they can take that costume off, and it's not really who they are. Uh, the, the problem is that this is not something easily dealt with. We can't just take it off ourselves and fix the problem ourselves as if we wanted to. Outside of Christ, this is us to the core. We are physically alive and yet spiritually dead. And, and we can't fix ourselves. All of this, apart from God, the way that we live and what we love and who we serve, puts us under God's wrath. Uh, when we think about wrath here, it's God's personal and his righteous hostility to evil. We, all of us, belong under God's wrath. I, I think that if there is any, any truth in Scripture that I struggle with more than anything else, it's the doctrine of hell. Uh, it is not because I don't believe that it's true. Uh, I do. But because it is so unbelievably terrible. Uh, Jesus speaks more about hell than he does about heaven. And he describes it in vivid terms through the gospel. In Luke 16, he says that it's a place of unending, eternal torment. It's a place where the worm never dies. There's no escape and there's no way of return. Uh, scripture teaches us that, that hell isn't a place that is reserved for particularly bad people. But it is the destiny of anyone and everyone who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> the Apostle Paul here for us begins with a, a diagnosis for us that could not be worse. We were dead, and apart from Christ, we stand under God's wrath. And just like any other terrible disease, it requires radical intervention. And we have spent a, a large chunk of time on these three verses, but I think that's important so that we understand the weight of life outside of Christ. We are told marvelous words here in verse 4. Uh, there is nothing more radical than these first words in verse 4, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. To the uh, unstoppable human plights of separation from God, there is a divine interruption in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the verses here that continue from verse 4 tell us two things. Not only who God is, but what he's done. We begin with this, that toward sinful, unliving, and unlovely people, God displays rich mercy and great love. It's remarkable. We've just talked about the fact that our sin deserves God's wrath, but instead of receiving God's wrath, we receive mercy. Uh, mercy is when God withholds the punishment that we deserve. Mercy means that God doesn't treat us the way that our sin deserves, but instead he treats us the way that Jesus deserves. Because Jesus took the wrath that we deserve. 
So because of Jesus, we move from under God's wrath to receiving God's mercy and love. I, uh, whenever I think about mercy, I don't know why in particular, but I think about like old uh, country western cowboy movies. Uh, you know, where like the good cowboy is always wearing white and the bad cowboy is always wearing black. Like, it's very obvious <laughs> who the goodies and the baddies are, right? And there's that point in time where the bad guy runs out of bullets and he's laying on the ground and the sheriff comes into town and the squirming, deserving of death kind of character calls out for mercy. Um, and, you know, oftentimes the sheriff you know, shows mercy to this undeserving uh, character. But the thing that the sheriff never does is show mercy and then say, I love you. Did you realize that's what Jesus has accomplished for us? That's the way that God the Father looks at saved people. Not only that he shows mercy towards us, but to sinners and rebellious people who have broken his law and fallen short in every way, he says, I, I, I love you. I will send my son for you, and Jesus willingly goes to the cross for us. So we're told that if we are looking for a description of us, it's that we're dead. If you're looking for a description of uh, our, our reality, it's that we're, we, are, we are not good people. We are, are bad people. But that God is, is rich in mercy and full of love for us. So that's who God is. But then these verses tell us more than that. They tell us what God has done. Uh, the first clue is in verse 5. That God has made us alive with Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2 is going to link the life of every Christian with the life of Christ. And so if you're looking for uh, what happens here, we have to think first about what is true of Christ. And then we can think about what is true of every Christian. We, we know in Romans 5, 8 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ dies, but he doesn't stay dead. Uh, God raised him up in victory over sin and death. And, and if we keep thinking about what happens to Jesus, he is he's made alive. That's the resurrection. But then he uh, ascends to heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the, the declaration that his work is finished. That the price is paid and it has been done. And I, I didn't ask for this, but it's, it's really wonderful that we recited the Apostles' Creed together. Because if you look back to what we said together, we said these things in the Apostles' Creed. We said, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Then he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. All those things are true. Uh, but Paul is saying more than that here in Ephesians 2. He's not just saying that Jesus is alive, and Jesus is ascended, and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He says that we have been made alive together with Christ. His resurrection is our resurrection. He is saying that his ascension is our ascension, that we have been uh, raised up with him. And that he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. It, it sort of boggles the mind, but it's theologically accurate to say that if you are in Christ, you are seated with him in the heavenly places. That, that makes my, my head spin a little bit, but scripture says it's true. 
So if, if we're thinking about all that Paul is saying so far, he's saying this. He says, once we were dead in our sin, now we are alive with Christ. Once we belong to the world, now we are citizens of heaven. And once we were slaves deserving of wrath, and now we are enthroned in the heavenly places with Christ. The, the contrast, it, you just recognize as a pastor, you can't do this justice. Who we are by nature and in Christ, who we become by grace. Uh, these are all completed actions. These are all things that are done. And these are all things that are, if you are in Christ, they are true. Uh, but, but sometimes when I get up in the morning or go through my day, it doesn't quite feel true. Uh, a few Christmases ago, somebody offered my wife and I tickets to a Christmas uh, concert. And uh, we got to the box office, and there was supposed to be a will call for us. So, you know, you, you go, you meet the, the nice person at will call, uh, and you ask for the tickets. And you know you have a problem when they ask you to spell your name after they've come back, right? So, can you spell your name for me? Spell it, he goes back, he goes, hey, I'm really sorry, uh, there's nothing here for you. And so I sort of like pled with the guy, I was like, hey, you know, we've come all this way. The, the guy who's the manager for the band said that there would be tickets, is there anything that you can do? And he's like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll try. So he calls, our buddy, who's the manager of the band, he comes back, he goes, hey, this is the best that I've got. It turns out when we got in there, the best that he had was the worst that exists. <laughs> um, so we got in there, but like, your back is on the wall that's in the back, and there's like a pole that's in the way, right? Like that sort of experience. I think sometimes as Christians, when we think about our security in Christ, we have this fear that we are going to get to that last day, and there's no room for you. Uh, we, we forgot about you. Uh, I'm sorry. The, 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 we forgot about your seats. Uh, the wonderful thing that we're told here is that Ephesians 2 offers confidence not in ourselves, not in a will call guy or our buddy that happened to forget, but our confidence is in Christ. And you are already presently seated with Christ. It is the best seat of the house. And no one can take that away from you. You, you think about all, all the, the, the things that we experience in this life. That make it feel like God is not on the throne. That the things that he says are not true. And Jesus is the only better word that gives us confidence that all will be made right. That our security is in the one who is enthroned in the heavenly places. For these things to not be true, God would have to stop being God. He would have to break his promises. Jesus perfectly saves his people. Uh, we get to one final question, and it's this. Uh, how and why were you saved? And there's a word that's repeated here twice for us. It's, it's the same word, it's grace. Uh, Paul is so insistent that we'll pick up on it that he repeats it both in verse 5 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. And then again in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved by faith. Our, our spiritual deadness outside of Christ 
confirms the kind of salvation that we need. Uh, dead people cannot do anything. So if we are going to be saved, it must be something that is external to us. And it cannot be something that we can work toward because dead people cannot work toward anything. And we're told here twice, it is completely unearned and completely undeserved. Uh, the reason that God saves us is not because of something in us, but it's because of something in him. If you look from scripture from the first to last page, and you're looking for any reason why God would save anyone, you will not find a reason other than because he chose to, because he wants to, and because he loves to. This is entirely a gift of God from start to finish. We're told here that in a positive way, it is a gift of grace. And in a negative way, it is not by works. Now you think about uh, the Christmas tree and giving gifts. Now you imagine how weird it would be if you had purchased a gift for somebody you love, you had wrapped it, and you went to give it to them on Christmas morning and they pulled their wallet out. Hey, what did this cost? Can I, can I, can I pay for it? It's not a gift anymore. We are told here that salvation is exclusively a gift. Nobody deserves it, and nobody earns it. And the moment that you and I try to work our way toward heaven, we are declaring that Jesus is insufficient, that he is not the perfect Savior that he claims to be, that his life and his death were not enough. There's a real humbling thing about this, is because you can either have salvation or you can have pride, but you can't have both. So if you will be saved by Jesus, it means that the only way to come is humbly. Humble faith, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As we just come to a close here, I would just ask you this, is, is that your story? Humble faith, the uh, gift of God so that nobody can boast. Uh, maybe as you think back and you think about your own story, you'd like to try to take credit in places. Uh, that some of the things added up so that God really liked you. Here we're told that in a disarming and confronting way, that good works will never earn your way toward a fellowship with the Lord. Uh, we, we get to one final verse here. Um, and this is confronting to us who uh, know and declare that we have been saved by grace. But then we start living with our own little bits of pride. Um, we start to live in, in our Christian life thinking that our, our good deeds are adding up to something. Uh, this final verse here in verse 10 declares that we have not been saved by good works, but instead that we have been saved for good works. Those who receive grace, it is our joy and privilege then to live a life of gratitude, knowing that our Heavenly Father notices everything, uh, the big things and the little things, the things that nobody else notices. So for the young mother getting up in the middle of the night and the little baby doesn't say thank you, uh, for uh, the person hard at work and the boss doesn't notice, uh, for the person who does their best and their spouse gives them the cold shoulder, that as we think about why we live the way that we do, it's not in order to earn God's favor, but it's to live in a way that displays our gratitude to Him. If you want to think about the way that your Heavenly Father sees you, verse 10 says that we are His 
workmanship. Uh, you could uh, translate this and almost say that we are his trophies of grace. Uh, you think about that, we have gone from uh, the walking dead before Christ to trophies of grace in Christ. It's an entirely new way to walk and a completely new way of life. Uh, it's wonderful to think about life this way because it, it frees us from anxiety, going, you know, am I doing this divine, he loves me, he loves me not. No, he, he loves me perfectly in Christ. It's freeing from anxiety. It, it confronts our pride because salvation is a gift and it transforms even the most mundane things of life that you think nobody else sees because we are his, his prized possession, his people. Jesus loves his church. Just as we, as we close our time, it's good for us uh, to be reminded uh, who we were before Jesus and how we've been saved by Jesus. There's a wonderful thing about the Christmas season in that uh, there are opportunities to share stories that your neighbor may not hear otherwise. So I would ask, would, would you tell them the, the wonder of why Christ came? Would you tell them the glorious story of what Christ has done in you? And would you offer them uh, the gift of grace? Uh, I think about this and I think about my, my own life uh, apart from Christ. Uh, the brokenness of my life outside of him, and that my story had no hope apart from Christ. When your neighbors or your friends uh, come needing hope, will you point them to the one true hope that lasts? I pray that you will, and that that will be your story too. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... I think would all agree in our weariness of the way that the world is um, and even our frustrations at ourselves um, as we struggle with our own sins and feel enslaved to our own passions uh, all the while trying to fix ourselves up. Lord, we pray that in a wonderful way that Ephesians 2 would remind us of the certainty and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that we would have a renewed awe for grace, uh, a renewed humility that confronts our pride, recognizing that we have never done one thing to earn your love. And we pray that we might walk away as people whose entire lives are transformed, that our good works are uh, a pleasing uh, sacrifice to you. And we pray that all of this would bring you glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.